Well, good morning, everyone. I am your stinky preacher of the day. Had a great time camping out here this weekend. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews. We don't have church Bibles, so hope you brought something. What is the greatest danger facing Christians today? Is it the danger of compromise or the danger of immorality or perhaps the danger of hostility against us from world powers? Well, this morning in this beautiful place, I have a word from God for you about the greatest danger facing you. This danger is not unique to our generation, but it has been the greatest danger facing Christians in every generation. It is the danger of drift, such that we take for granted our salvation. Our greatest danger is not that we would deny the good news about Jesus outright, though of course that is a real danger, but the more seductive and insidious danger is that we would just grow bored with the good news about Jesus and go looking for something more exciting. Especially when life is hard and the free gift of salvation doesn't seem to alleviate the very real aches and pains of life on earth. Thank you. But here's the thing. Only Jesus can get you where you want to go. And the process of getting there is what the book of Hebrews means when it talks about salvation. Salvation is not about making your life better. It, it may actually make your life worse, at least in the here and now. But there is a glorious new world coming. Jesus has already gotten there and he's left a trail of rope behind him along the way. And if you maintain your hold on that rope, he will pull you through the pain of the present and into the freedom of the future. But let go of that rope and you just might drift and lose your way. The main idea this morning is simply that Jesus can get you where you want to go. So now, more than ever, is time to grab his rope and not let go. Let me pray again for us as we dig into our text. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please draw near to us through Christ. Open your word to us that we might see Jesus, that we might hold fast to him and pay much closer attention to what we've heard 
that we might not drift from it. Strengthen us and encourage us through the trials we face. And we ask that you would help us and be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I'd like to talk about the danger of drift. Our text this morning begins with an instruction and a warning. Here's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's how our text starts. The instruction here is to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. The warning involves the danger of drift. Now, when he talks about what we have heard, this thing that we must pay much closer attention to, he's talking about what God has spoken through his son. That's what this book of Hebrews has been about from the very first verse. Jesus Christ has come from God and he's told us about how to know God. He is now the only one in the universe authorized to speak for God. So we must pay much closer attention to him. And why? Because, as this verse says, if we break our attention for even a moment, we will drift. We will become like sailboats with broken tillers. The wind will take us somewhere quickly, but there's no telling where. This is perhaps the most insidious danger a church can fall into. The nature of drift is that it is incremental. It's often imperceptible. We can be on the right tack for a time, but when our attention falters for a moment, we drift off course. So remember, this is not a complex point. What must our attention be on? The sun. What will happen if our attention flickers or falters? Drift. But we are so prone to fall right into this, aren't we? Maybe you became a Christian because you realized Jesus was amazing and you could have all your sins forgiven. But then people started laughing at you. And you lost your promotion. And your spouse got sick. And your kids are hard to handle. What gives? Do you then start to worry, maybe I'm on the wrong boat. Maybe I'm holding on to the wrong rope. I need something else to get me through grad school. Or maybe you join a church because it's where you met the Lord Jesus. But over time, the church starts talking more about its children's ministry or its worship team or its need for volunteers or its plans to get a certain candidate elected to political office. And of course, none of those things are bad. The Bible speaks to all of those things. But if we end up talking about such things in such a way 
that we become slower and slower to get around to actually talking about Jesus, then we are in the process of drifting from him. So this is the primary application of this text before us today. Pay closer attention to Jesus, to what you've heard from him, or else we will drift. The chapter goes on to give us three reasons why we must do this. You see the word must. Three reasons. Notice the word for in verse 2 and in verse 5. For and in verse 10. For. That marks out three sections in the chapter to give us three reasons why to pay closer attention. So I hope to persuade you this morning to pay much closer attention to Jesus for the same three reasons presented here. And you can see them on your outline, points two through four. It's because of where we want to go. It's because Jesus already got there and because Jesus can get us there too. By the end, we'll see that only Jesus can get us where we want to go. Let's walk through each reason in turn. Point number two, where we want to go. This is verses two through four. Four, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the first reason why we must pay attention to Jesus is because of where we want to go. The author explains it by taking the old message that had been delivered by angels and the new message that had been delivered by Jesus and he points out what is similar about those messages so that he can get around to highlighting what's different about them. Here's what I mean. Verse 2, he says, the angel's message was reliable. And in verse 3, so was Jesus's message. Now, the angel's message, we talked a little bit about it last week. It's called the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The law of Moses was handed to Moses on Mount Sinai by the angels. He's talking about all that older stuff and the new covenant through Jesus. And he says both messages are reliable in delivering severe consequences for those who ignore the message. So when he, when he highlights what's different, he doesn't say there's anything wrong with the Old Testament. It was full of life and instruction for human flourishing. But ignore that message and you are walking away from what will enable you to flourish before your creator. Similar with Jesus' message. But those similarities that you can't escape the negative consequences of ignoring it those similarities only serve to highlight what is different between these messages. You see, in verse 2, the old message of the angels is characterized in two words as a message of just retribution. 
for disobedience. That's what they brought, just retribution. And the new message of Jesus is characterized in two words in verse 3 as a message of great salvation. Jesus brought great salvation. This salvation was so crucial for the Lord to communicate that in verse 3 we're told Jesus himself spoke of it. At the end of verse 3, the apostles bore witness to it. In verse 4, God himself bore witness to the apostles preaching through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of his Holy Spirit. So the reliability of the message has been confirmed by all of these divine signs. To give just a few examples, in the book of Acts, Peter and John heal a a man from being crippled in his legs. And Paul raises a woman from the dead. And they do these things to show that the message they preached was in fact in line with the message of Jesus who came from God. The question here for me and for you is, where do you want to go? Do you want to flourish or not? Do you want to go to a place where you have to pay for everything or where someone else pays for you? One of my daughters is quite enterprising. I won't name names, but whenever I invite this daughter to something, she always wants to know who is paying. Hey, girl, I'd like to take you to go get a slushy at Sheets. You want to come? Are you paying? Yes. Okay, I'll come. Hey, girl, I'm going to see the new Spider-Man movie. You want to tag along? Are you paying? No, not this time. Then I'll have to think about that. I'm not sure. You see, that's cute when it's talking about my daughter out in the town. It's not quite as cute when we're talking about which future world will hold a person's citizenship. Because the Bible teaches that this world is not all that there is. Isn't this beautiful out here? This is amazing. It's such a wonderful place that some of us got to spend this last weekend. But there is another world coming that will replace this one. There is a new heaven and a new earth where God and humanity live in perfect community and justice and righteousness characterize every local community. As we keep reading in this chapter, we'll see that verse 5 calls this place the world to come. And please understand, this is not talking about an immaterial heaven where you float to after you die. It's talking about a tangible flesh and blood place just like this, except with no sin, no suffering But you need to know first that the process of getting to that world to come is called here in verse 3, a great salvation. Salvation is the present experience of journeying 
into that world to come. So when the future world takes over the present world and replaces it, and you open your eyes and you take a look around to get your bearings, will you be in a place where everything you've got has been bought and paid for by the Son of God? Or would you prefer to enter the world where you get to pay for everything you've ever done and everything you want to do? So where do you want to go? That's the first reason to pay attention to Jesus, that we don't neglect this great salvation. This is where we want to go. The next world is open and available to us. Let's not drift from the pathway that gets us there. And how do we know which pathway is the one that gets us there? How can we be confident that the Son of God has given us not a bum deal, but a truly great salvation? What's point number three? It's because we can actually see that Jesus got there. Jesus already got there. That's the author's second reason for why we must pay closer attention to the Son. It's because we can see that he has already gotten to where we want to go. Look at verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The main idea in this part of the passage is that Jesus already got to where we want to go. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 5 says that there is another world coming. And the angels are not the ones who will be in charge of it. This leads him to reflect in verses 6 through 8 on a poem from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 8. That poem begins and ends with a declaration that God's majesty is seen in all the earth, in the present earth. And his, the poem describes God's majesty seen especially in two examples of weakness. The poet talks first about the mouths of children that silence God's enemies. And then he talks about the coming rule over all the earth of humanity. Despite the fact that humanity is somewhat powerless when compared to angels, 
It's important for us to understand that Psalm 8 is not speaking directly about any particular human, but it's speaking about humanity in general. God has set humanity on a course to rule and subdue the earth in his name. In order to understand what Hebrews is saying, we need to understand that that's what Psalm 8 is talking about. Humanity in general is on a course to rule and subdue the earth in God's name. And eventually humanity will rule everything. Because, now back to Hebrews 2, he mentions a potential setback to that plan. Verse 8, he says, God has left nothing outside of the control of humanity, but it doesn't look like it. We look around. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You see, there are parts of the world that humanity hasn't yet tamed. There are depths of the ocean we haven't figured out. There are stars and planets we haven't yet cataloged. And the parts we thought we had tamed still often turn against our authority. Hurricanes destroy cities. Dogs bite pedestrians. Cancer and viruses assault our bodies. We do not yet see everything in subjection to humankind. But, but, he says in verse 9, there is something we do see. We can see the one who was made lower than the angels for a little while, and we can see how that one has made it through this broken world and he's already made it on to the next one. He was crowned with glory and honor. That's his description of the world to come. And the one that we can see who has done this is named Jesus. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that he finally names the Son of God, Jesus. The point is this. Humanity as a whole is not yet where God wants us to be. Heaven and earth have not been fully subjected to us. But what Psalm 8 reminds us of is that this world is not all that there is. There is another world still to come, a world where no hurricane can destroy a city, a world where no dogs will bite pedestrians, a world where cancer and viruses have no power over the new and improved human body. And here in Hebrews 2, the author tells us that Jesus has already made it into that new world. The world to come has broken into the present and it's now here to stay. That's what it means when he says Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Now, do you notice in this verse how Jesus got into the world to come? Or more precisely, what qualified him to enter it? See in verse 9, he was crowned with glory and honor because of 
the suffering of death. Jesus' pathway to glory took him through the suffering of death. His qualification for entering the future world was death in and to the present world. Jesus did this in order to show us the way. He did this so that, as it says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. His death has a dramatic effect on our lives. His death shows us the way to glory. His death makes possible our life because his blood is the currency that bought our tickets into that world. He tasted death as our representative so that when he died, we died in him. That's some fancy language that the New Testament uses, but what it boils down to in the words of my own enterprising daughter is this. You're taking people to a new and glorious future world, Jesus. Are you paying? Yes. Yes, I am. So we've seen that the new world of peace and glory is where we want to be. And Jesus already got there into that world ahead of us. These are the first two reasons why we ought to pay much closer attention to him and his message. But there's one last reason in this chapter to motivate us to pay much closer attention. And that's because not only is Jesus presently where we want to go, but point number four, Jesus can get us there too. Look at verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the foundation of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And brothers and sisters, what this all boils down to is that Jesus 
can get you where you want to go. Do you see it there in verse 10? His intention is bringing many sons to glory. Okay, and the sons, it's not only males. Okay, it includes women. He's talking about in the ancient world, only sons could receive an inheritance. And so we're all sons now. We're all heirs. And he's bringing us to glory. And in order to do that, in order to bring his children to glory, he, God the Father, had to use suffering to make Jesus perfect. What he means is that the suffering of death is what qualified him for crowning with glory and honor, his entrance into the world to come. This was all part of God's plan to bring many sons to glory. That's why Jesus suffered. That's why he entered the new world of glory. It's because his commission was to bring God's children along with him. In verses 11 through 13, the author quotes from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah 8 to show that the Son of God is not ashamed to consider himself brother to weak and sinful people who haven't yet attained glory. You might not feel like much, but he is not ashamed of you. And the last few verses here describe how all this went down. Verse 14, Jesus took on real flesh and blood, a human nature, so that he could identify with humanity. And he died a human death to destroy the devil who had the power of death. You see, in the history of the world, no one had ever gone toe-to-toe with death and come back to tell about it. But Jesus did. He was death's first loss in the history of the world. And thereby, Jesus broke the power of fear. You see, people who are going to die and can do nothing about it have every reason to fear death. That's why some people today diet like crazy and exercise like crazy and live lives averse to any sort of risk. This fear of death permeates us, and this is slavery, is what he says. But when Jesus died and he came back from the dead, he broke the devil's power and set his brothers and sisters free from fear of death. So death no longer has any mastery over you. So, you know, like Jesus, you too can now suffer. You can get sick, you can be attacked, you can be persecuted, you can even die. And you know what? That's just part of the gateway, part of the train into the glorious future world. You have already entered that world spiritually if you have pledged allegiance to Jesus. And if you are attached to him, your suffering and your death is your the track that's been laid for your train to get into that world physically in the resurrection of the last day. So there's nothing to fear in death. And if you don't fear death, 
Nobody can have any power over you. What could they possibly do to you that the Lord Jesus Christ can't completely undo and give you back a hundredfold? Verse 16 drops a bombshell on the whole argument. He says that Jesus didn't do any of this for angels. Those great creatures we saw in chapter 1, delivering God's messages, wanting power over the world. He didn't do any of this for angels, but only for humans and only for a subset of humans. Those whom he says are the offspring of Abraham, those who have banked their future on the person and work of the Son of God. There is no hope for salvation for fallen angels. There's no hope for salvation for those who refuse to pledge allegiance to Jesus. Salvation is an inheritance reserved for the new humanity, for those who trust the Son of God and follow him into the new world. What Hebrews is saying in this chapter is that Jesus has made it through the labyrinth of this world. Through his suffering and his death, he has left a trail of rope behind him. And those who hold fast to him, paying close attention to what he has said, they are holding on to the rope he has laid. And since he has already gone before them into the glorious new world to come, he can pull on that rope so that his brothers and sisters can make their way into the glorious new world with him as well. Friends, please understand that Jesus can get you where you want to go. This great salvation that Jesus has proclaimed is the promise of suffering that leads to glory. Jesus has taken that path before you and he's bringing you to be with him. Do not take this salvation for granted, but stay loyal. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Let me end with some more application. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard from Jesus. This is really important when life gets tough. You know, I thought Jesus was going to make me happy. I thought I'd feel more fulfilled, that things would be easier. But since I trusted him, my life has gotten harder. People don't respect me. Maybe your family doesn't understand you. Or maybe your illness won't go away. Jesus' rope seems all jagged and spindly and my hands are starting to bleed. Maybe I can grab onto a different, smoother rope that will grant me an easier ride. And friends, don't do it. The author of Hebrews does not sing, If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. No, his song is more like, 
If you're saved and you know it, don't let go. Stay the course. Maintain your allegiance to the Son of God. You need to know that though it seems difficult now, we do not yet see all things in subjection to us. By the time you reach the world to come, this will all have seemed to have been light and momentary. And when that's your perspective, death will have no mastery over you. Illness and persecution has no power to cause you to fear. There is nothing left to be afraid of. Find in Jesus a brother who can help you along through death to a glorious future. So in conclusion, beware the danger of drift. Keep your focus on Jesus. That's because the new world of God's kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth is where we want to go. Jesus has already gotten there ahead of us and he can get us there too. Only Jesus can get you where you want to go. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, our hope is Jesus. If he doesn't pull us through, we are dead. We have nothing. Help us to hold fast to him today, tomorrow, this week, next week. Help us to encourage one another in these things and to maintain our hold on his rope. May we pay much closer attention. Please strengthen us for this task. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.